0: You are now listening to the September 29th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's topics are the history of the Biblio, the sex spiral, and grace upon grace. We will begin with the history of the Biblio. This program will examine how the Bible was recorded, inspect the archaeological evidence, as well as the different languages it has been translated into.
1: Hi listeners, it's Jisoo from the History of the Biblio where we learn about the translation and preservation of the Bible. Last time we looked at the history of the English Bible in America As stated previously, the Bay Psalms, published by Puritan settlers, was the first book to be printed in America. The Bay Psalms was first printed in 1700, and America 400 years later has many versions of the English Bible being printed every day. Looking at how widespread the English Bible is in today's world, can't you picture those people who so hope for such a day to come? I keep thinking about John Wycliffe and William Tyndale two people who translated the Bible into English despite the dangers of translating in that age. Just as they hoped and prayed for, the English Bible is widely read and used today. During Martin Luther's time, the Bible was translated into 15 languages. But as of today, the complete Bible has been translated into over 600 languages. Parts of the Bible have been translated into over 2,400 languages. Bible translating organizations, like the Bible Society and the Wycliffe Global Alliance, played an important role in the widespread translation of the Bible. Today we are going to examine the role of these organizations in the translation and preservation of the Bible. The story of the creation of the Bible Society started when, in 1800, a young girl by the name of Mary Jones bought a Bible. Mary was a Welsh farm girl who, after becoming a Christian at age eight, became an avid Bible reader. Despite her love for the Bible, her family could not afford a Bible. In order to purchase a Bible for herself, Mary Jones worked many different jobs that came her way and saved up her wages for six years. Even with the money, it was difficult for Mary to buy a Bible because the only place she could buy a Bible was Bala, a town 26 miles from her home. Mary Jones, however, was determined, and she walked the 26 miles barefoot. At the time, the only person selling Bibles in Bala was a minister by the name of Thomas Charles. When Mary visited the reverend, Charles gave Mary disappointing news. The last available print was already promised to someone else. Mary was so disappointed by this news that she was overcome with tears. Reverend Charles was saddened by Mary's tears and was determined to do something to replenish Welsh Bibles in the region. Afterwards, Charles participated in a meeting of the Council of the Religious Tract Society and told them the story of Mary Jones and the necessity of a Welsh Bible. Pastor Joseph Hughes, then Secretary of the Religious Tract Society, was inspired by Mary's story. He said famously, If for Wales, why not for the Kingdom? And if for the Kingdom, why not for the world? Such thinking led to the formation of what is now the British and Foreign Bible Society. The British and Foreign Bible Society was first established in 1804. Two years later, in 1806, 10,000 Welsh Bibles were produced. And in 1808, 30,000 Welsh New Testaments and 20,000 complete Bibles were distributed. Though the British and Foreign Bible Society was created for the publishing of Welsh Bibles, within 10 years of the formation of the British and Foreign Bible Society, many other Bible societies formed across Europe, in Germany, Switzerland, Netherlands, Russia, and Hungary and in 1816, the American Bible Society was formed. Bible societies are traditionally an ecclesiastical organization that sets as its purpose to produce and translate Bibles that can be distributed cheaply and easily understood. As of 2010, there are 147 Bible societies across the globe, and these societies together form the International Bible Society. Bibles translated and printed by Bible societies like the British and Foreign Bible Society have been translated into more than 700 languages and number over 500 million copies. Isn't it amazing that such an influential organization started all because a little girl desperately wanted her own Bible? Similarly, the creation of the Wycliffe Global Alliance can be traced back to the question of one tribal member. In 1917, a missionary named William Cameron Townsend was sent to Guatemala to sell Spanish Bibles. At the time, missionaries in Central America were first tasked to teach the indigenous people Spanish, and then teach them to read the Bible in Spanish. But learning a foreign language and reading the Bible in this foreign language was very difficult for the natives. One Cachiquil tribesman asked Townsend, If your God is so great, why can't he speak our language? This made Townsend determined to translate the Bible into Cachicol. Fourteen years later, Townsend published the first Cachicol version of the Bible. Afterwards, Townsend learned that there were hundreds of tribes without a written language, with over 50 of them in Mexico alone. Thus, Townsend created the Summer Institute of Linguistics, or SIL, to train translators. Thus, Townsend created the Summer Institute of Linguistics, or SIL, to train translators. Over 4,000 translators have been trained through the SIL to date. And in 1942, Townsend established the Wycliffe Bible Translators using the name of famous Bible translator John Wycliffe. Wycliffe Bible Translators are working in over 93 countries, translating the Bible into over 2,000 minority languages. This Wycliffe Bible Translators is also known today as the Wycliffe Global Alliance. I remember seeing a poster for the Wycliffe Bible Translators on my church bulletin board when I was young. Most of the times, such posters contain a punchline or a strong image to make it memorable. But this poster was all white, with a simple blue border and the words Wycliffe Bible Translators in small print. Most of the poster was white. I remember thinking the poster was very unique. I'm not sure exactly what the poster represents, but seeing as there are still over 1.5 billion people on this earth who cannot read a Bible in their mother tongue, I can see how the white represents the current condition. Of the 7,000 or so languages that exist in the world today, there are only 600 or so languages in which a complete Bible exists. This means that the remaining 6,300 languages, or 91% of the world's languages, does not have a complete Bible. The fact that the Bible exists today, despite persecution and oppression, is evidence that the Bible contains the living truth. People have translated the Bible because they were determined to spread this truth to different people. The Bible is the Word that reveals God and evidences Jesus Christ, the living Word that became flesh, came to this earth, died, was reborn, and rose into heaven. We have all been blessed because we can access this precious life-giving message whenever and wherever we want. I pray that this blessing prompts us to read and spread the Bible constantly. I end the history of the Biblio here. Thank you for listening this far. Goodbye.
0: Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor Dustin Daniels.
2: We wrap up our study today on being made perfect in purity. We started off in the Old Testament by defining what purity really is. We then studied Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, and we heard the tenderness of our Heavenly Father. And then we moved to the New Testament, and we looked at the amazing story of Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery. And now, we get to see how all of this comes together in an amazing conclusion. I mentioned several days ago that Jesus knows the pain, and He knows the shame that goes with sexual sin. Today, we learn how he did that. In today's podcast, we'll learn, number one, why Jesus is called the Lamb of God, who is the only one who can take away sin. Number two, why Jesus bled from seven places for our lack of purity. And number three, what a lesson, what a message like this should drive us to do in response to hearing the message. Today's lesson is titled, The Seven Places That will set you free. And it brings us back to Proverbs 7 2. Keep my commandments and live, and live again, and be healed. Do you guys see the the same tenderness that was written in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 and how it was lived out in the life of Jesus? Do you see how they're not two separate things, but they're integrated? And here's the thing. This woman, she had no idea that this man standing in front of her was getting ready to to pay the ultimate price to go to Calvary for her sexual sin. See, Jesus, he's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Jesus, this unblemished, this undefiled Son of Man, Jesus, this man who has nothing mixed in. He's pure, and he's perfect, and it's it's what we're supposed to be. But the problem is, is that we're not. And it's because we're not that Jesus is called the Lamb of God, and he had to be slain. He had to be slain to make us pure. The prophet Isaiah writes about Jesus five to seven hundred years before Jesus was born. And he says this Many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was a man. Did you guys know that Jesus bled from seven specific places on his body? If you know anything about the Bible, the number seven is the number of perfection. And I would like us to go into a time of reflection for a few moments. When it comes to purity, we're going to focus in on the grace of Almighty God in speaking to us in this subject, and yet at the same time, we need to look in the rearview mirror of our own life. The first place that Jesus bled from was his head. The Roman soldiers knew that he was called the king of the Jews, So instead of giving them a a crown of gold, jewels, they thought it would be pretty funny to go and create some type of crown of thorns. And they just didn't put it on Jesus' head. They beat it onto his head. And Jesus bled from his head. I want us to think about all the, the things that maybe we couldn't face up to the things that we're scared to address right now. I want us to think about all the things that we've thought about in the past, all the fantasies, all the things that maybe we have seen that we should have never seen, all the things that we said that we should have never said or heard that we should have never heard. Dear friends, I want you to know that Jesus Christ bled from his back and you're forgiven. Bled from his head and you're forgiven. The second place is his back. After they got done mocking him and spitting on him and making fun of him, they thought it would be really fun to go out and and tie him to a pole, and they took what's called a flagellum. And it's a whip, it's a leather whip, and it has different lengths of of leather straps, and it's got zinc and, and metal in it, and the sole purpose, it's a torture device for one thing, and that is to rip the skin off the back of its victim. I want us to think about all the times that we have turned our back on God, all the times that we have turned our back on our spouse and on our family and our commitments and our engagements and all the times that we said, you know what, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going this way. I'm turning my back on everybody. Dear friends, Jesus Christ bled from his back and you're forgiven. The third and fourth places that Jesus bled from was his hands. Back then, part of your hands was your wrist. So they they took two spikes and they put it in the wrist of Jesus. And they pinned him to to a tree very similar to this. Can you imagine the pain? I want you to think about all the different times that you've used your hands. And maybe you touched someone you were never supposed to touch. Maybe you touched yourself inappropriately. Maybe you're clicking the mouse and looking at pornography. Maybe you grabbed someone in anger. Maybe you struck someone. Jesus Christ bled from his hands, and you're forgiven. The fifth and sixth places Jesus bled from was his feet. They took one spike and nailed it to the cross, so now he can barely breathe as he's on this cross, I want you to think about how many times that you've walked away from things that you weren't supposed to walk away from. How many times that you've run into the arms of an adulteress because you couldn't deal with with the pain of your life. My life is exhibit A on that. And dear friends, Jesus bled from his feet as well. The last place was his side... After Jesus willingly died, he willingly gave his spirit. Nobody took it from them. He did that. A Roman soldier takes a spear and thrusts it into the side of Jesus, and it goes into his lungs and his heart and outpours water and blood. Fulfilling prophecy, he ushers in this New Testament, this thing called grace that we've been talking about this morning. It also means another thing. Blood and water mean he's dead. That's what you get with an autopsy. Blood and water. This man is dead and on that cross. And if that weren't weren't enough, (laughs) they take him down and they bury him. And three days later, he has the audacity to walk out of his own grave. He did what he said he was going to do. He conquers sin and death. And guys, ladies... Now you're forgiven and you're free by the blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness. Hebrews 12.2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame, and he's he seated at the right hand of the Father. This idea of despising the shame, Jesus Jesus was crucified completely naked. Most of the pictures that we see, he's covered, but he was... The Romans, they, they didn't care. Think about, think about the disgrace, the disgust, and Jesus himself bore that shame that embarrassment there was no clothing to protect Jesus from that so he can identify with what we're talking about there is not a shred of decency And at the end of the day guys because of what Jesus did it means that your sin has no value And if your sin has no value, it means you have, it has, doesn't have any power over you either. We get all locked up in what we're getting ready to do and why we can't serve and why we can't give. I just want to free you up this morning and focus on those words. The loving words from Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Jesus' words, neither do I. Guys, you were made perfect in purity. Perfect by the blood of Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we simply, we, uh, we just want to come to you now in a time of reflection, in a time of confession, a time of repentance but most of all, Lord God, we want to come to you in a time of worship because worship is the only thing that we can do in response to making us perfect in your purity. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Worship is indeed the only thing that we can do when we see and feel the weight and the gravity of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in our lives. Amen? To worship and just be grateful and thankful. It's all we can do. To worship God for who He is. To bring Him glory. And I love preaching that message because as I go through those seven places, I have this amazing privilege of really having a front row seat to watch The Lord set people free by the power of the Holy Spirit, and people's eyes begin to well up with tears, and God lets them know that they are indeed not only forgiven, but they are free. So how about you? Have you come to the place where the chains have been broken and and you're not carrying around this baggage of sexual sin anymore? And if not, why? Why? Do you not think it's possible? Do you think that message is for everybody but you? Or is it that you still love your sin too much? So here's a question. Do you know why you love your sin? Because it's much more than just feeling good for a short period of time. And this question, I actually address this issue in my new 35-day audio devotional. It's called The Sex Spiral. It's 13 going on, 14 years of my recovery with the Lord, my walking with the Lord, something that you can experience in just over a month, and it specifically addresses the the habit, the bondage, the addiction to pornography. Why can't you stop? Here's the cool thing. I designed this series as an individual study because I know the embarrassment, the shame to go ask for help or go into a bookstore or even wanting to go to Amazon to to buy something. This is an individual study. This could literally be the first chapter into your life of being sexually pure, learning what sexual integrity looks like, and then remaining sexually sober. So check it out. All you have to do is do what you're doing now. You're listening to a 15 to 20 minute podcast. You would simply do that only with notes and a much greater purpose. For the next 35 days so in just over a month you're going to learn god's design for sex marriage and the family you're also going to learn the triggers that lead to porn addiction it's like a road map you got to figure out where you are and once you figure out where you are then you can learn how to exit the spiral itself so let me encourage you to order it today go to dustindaniels.org click on store you can also receive a 20% discount with the promotional code podcast. Well, thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor and email me your questions. I would love to hear from you. Just visit dustindaniels.org. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.20, that the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. It's living with God. It's walking with him moment by moment, talking with him throughout the day. It's that power that's in the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you walk worthy today as you cling to him.
3: Of worship.
0: Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries awaits for your participation for Listener's Survey. Your opinion is highly valued. All gathered information will be for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. It will go towards our ministry's efforts to share the gospel. You may participate by completing the questionnaire survey delivered to your address, or go online at www.heartandsoul.org. Our return address for paper survey is 12802 North 28th Drive, Phoenix, Arizona, 85029. This survey ends November 15th. We wait for your participation and thank you for your input. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of the Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Take a Stand, based on Daniel chapter six. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark.
4: In Daniel chapter six, and that's where I'd like for you to open your Bibles tonight, In Daniel chapter 6, we have a classic example of uncompromising integrity. Note, at at this point in Daniel's life, he's 85 plus years old, getting close to 90. So he's an old man. The book of Daniel starts with him maybe being, he's in his teens, maybe 16 when chapter 1 occurs. So we've got the big span of Daniel's life covered in a lot of years, from Daniel chapter 6, I'm going to read just almost the whole chapter. So let's look at verse 1, Daniel 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius, that's the king, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, they kind of be like governors, to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent, what, spirit was in him. Now we would know that in the new covenant as the Holy Spirit, right? An excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So this guy is going to be number one. You know, I think of another guy in the book of Genesis who Pharaoh sent to be number one, right? And that was Joseph. So here he's headed for even more greatness than he's had. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for the complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. He was blameless. See, these others were jealous of him. And I think the thing that galled them the most was that he was Hebrew. He was a Jew. And how can this foreigner, this minority, become now, you know, the highest official in the country? He's going to telling us all what to do and they were really bugged with that. So they're looking. Somehow there's got to be some kind of dirt to dig up on Daniel. But nobody could find anything. He was a man of integrity. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel, you know, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king, and they said to him, O king Darius, live forever forever. And this is, they're set in a trap. All the high officials of the kingdom, of prefects and satraps, the counselors, the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. That's kind of appealing to your pride, right? You're the only one anybody's going to worship for a month. Oh, that sounds cool. It's, you know. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document, so it cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Once the king signed a law, it could not be revoked. There couldn't be a referendum. There's no changing the law. So he signed the document and the injunction. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, now we're going to come back to Daniel 10 a couple of times, this verse, in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement, these are his enemies, He's people who were scoping him out, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, oh, this thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. You know, get the lawyers, look at the books, is there any way that we can get a law? Is there a loophole? Any way to get him out? Because the king liked Daniel. He was the man that he wanted in charge. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king King establishes can be changed. Verse 16, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was laid, brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with that of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then he hears this voice, O king, live forever. That's that familiar voice. God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless, integrity, before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. king was exceedingly glad. commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. Maybe he had some lion hair on him. I don't know. It wasn't good for his enemies just to kind of finish the end, you know. They ended up where they wanted Daniel to be. You know... Usually people think the obvious highlight of this incident is when the angel from God is sent and shuts the lion's mouth and saves Daniel from certain death. That picture of Daniel in the lion's den is indelibly impressed in my mind from childhood when we would, in the kids' ministry, in those days, I am so giving away my age, but they would have these scrolls, not leather scrolls, but they would have these big charts of pictures that, that they would turn the pages. They were huge. And us little kids, I mean, we'll just, in kindergarten and younger, we would see these stories, and they were so awesome. And I remember the one. How many of you remember a picture? I mean, you just saw one of Daniel in the lion's said. As a kid, I remember that story. I always thought, God, it's so cool. And it is pretty amazing, any way you look at it, that... The lions didn't eat Daniel, and the angels shut their mouth, right? But I don't think that's the highlight of what's recorded here. I think the highlight of this event is the courageous display of Daniel's integrity. The reason Daniel finds himself in the lion's den in the first place is because he was a person of integrity, amen? He was willing to stand alone. Look again at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. Jews always prayed toward Jerusalem. They still do. Uh, They pray toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day. That was his cousin morning, midday, and evening, and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He knew and he kept on doing what he'd always done. He refused to compromise. Would you say, Daniel refused to compromise? Say that with me. Daniel refused to compromise. We're living in a world of compromise. Tolerance is seen as a virtue. Think about it. Compromise is considered diplomatic, right? Right? Compromise is perceived to be reasonable. Come on, just be reasonable. Compromise a little. If you don't compromise, you're considered a hater. But somebody has said, but those who are uncompromising and hold to their integrity are often viewed as difficult, hard-nosed, and unconcerned from their common good. You can understand why the world thinks this way but should Christians be different? And I think the answer is what? Yes. There have been many psychological studies about the power of compromise and caving in to pressure. And I want to read to you a summary of one of them. One classic study involved 10 students who were shown three charts with a series of lines varying in links on each one, Okay. The teacher instructed the students to raise his or her hand when he pointed to the longest line on each chart. Pretty simple. What one student of the 10 didn't know was that the other nine had been instructed ahead of time to raise their hands for the next to the longest line. And when the teacher pointed to the shorter line and nine students raised their hands, choosing it as the longest line, the lone student would glance Around and most of the time, reluctantly raised his hand, even though it was obviously the wrong choice. The same results happened about 75% of the time during the experiments. The point is nobody wants to be the only one, right? No one wants to stand out and risk looking stupid. But it's unfortunate that many Christians, unlike Daniel, compromise their integrity. Often it's because they're too concerned about what people might say about them or think about them. The natural desire is to fit in, right? And to be accepted. I don't want to be weird, you know? That's what he should I wear this shirt? You know, I want to fit in. I don't to be weird. Is Paisley okay? And... You know, Leslie said, yes, it's okay. And I said, now, will you really tell me if it's not? Yes, I would tell you. But it's not natural to want to stand alone. It's not natural. But there will be many times in your life when you have to stand alone to maintain your integrity. I want you to look again at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. That's the way he prayed. Every day, three times a day when he was praying, he'd open it up and he'd go, you know, he'd face Jerusalem and there he would pray. Now, that's gutsy. Daniel was the only person, probably among tens of thousands of people who did not do what came naturally. He stood alone. And that's the point, learn to stand alone. I want you to ask a couple of questions about your personal integrity. Now this is not you give me an answer back kind of question, this is something that you think about and just be very careful in your thinking. I wanna ask you, here's the first thing, I want you to think of when the last time you made a hard decision to maintain your personal integrity. Another question would be, when's the last time you politely disagreed with some derogatory comment that was made about your faith? When's the last time you justified disobeying God? Maybe you rationalized not doing what you know is the right thing to do. God calls us to obedience, even when it's a hard obedience, you know? There's another thing to think about, and that's how... Compromise affects other people and the people around us. When's the last time you would not participate in an activity because you didn't want to compromise your witness? Have you ever thought that you might be justifying your compromise by rationalizing that you may actually make Jesus more palatable to people? You know I don't want to be the weird Christian I want to be winsome you know what that means I, I want to be somebody who would draw to question but I want to be their friend nothing wrong with that for sure I want to model Jesus love. nothing wrong with that I'm not saying that do you compromise because you want to be a spiritual diplomat that's what I'm saying think about this could your presence somewhere imply acceptance Of a lifestyle or philosophy that you do not believe in? Even though you don't participate in the sin or you reject the philosophy or lifestyle behind it, does your presence imply approval or acceptance? We've got to think about these things now. You may actually run the risk of confusing a seeking person or ruin your witness with them. It's a fine line. I know it. It's a fine line to draw between, you know, doing, going and compromising and not compromising. But it's got to be God give me wisdom. Standing alone means standing apart from what others are doing. Would you agree? I mean, Daniel stood apart. And maybe it's not, I don't think he wanted to, he didn't plan it. But hey, things happen. And he had to take a stand. And when's the last time that you stood alone? Daniel's determination to stand alone and maintain his integrity had been cultivated throughout his life. Daniel chapter 6 wouldn't have happened unless Daniel chapter 1 had happened. I want you to look at Daniel chapter 1. Here's what I mean. Just a tad bit of history. There's a little background here. Following uh, his first invasion of Judah and the siege of Jerusalem in 606 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took dozens, scores of hostages back to Babylon with him, and Daniel was among this group. Like I said, Daniel was young. You know, it's amazing how God uses teenagers, and he was a teenager when he was carted off to Babylon. And the king's plan was to integrate them into Babylonian lifestyle and government. They would have been given some of the greatest privileges in the world at that time. And as the record states, the king was looking to to train new leaders. And he ordered his chief official to choose from among the Hebrews. He was looking for certain qualities. And if you look at chapter 1, verse 4, you'll see what they were. They must be of the royal family or nobility. And then look at verse 4, they must be skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonian folks. Verses 5 through 7, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. He gives them pagan names. They're named after false gods. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. It's been pointed out that Daniel didn't balk at receiving a pagan education, okay? He didn't balk at being trained in the king's service. He didn't even complain about having his name changed to one that contained the name of a pagan god. But he drew the line where scripture drew the line, amen? Look at verse eight. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel would not participate in anything that would compromise his integrity and his obedience to God. Who would have known? I mean, come on. What's a little meat and some wine, right? Couldn't he have rationalized that he might be a better witness if he didn't come across too dogmatic about what he ate, what he drank? And it's implied in all of this that if he botched up here, he would not be able to advance in the king's service. I'm I'm sure there were dozens of other ways that Daniel might have justified some kind of a slight compromise even. But look at verse 8 again. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. The King James Version says Daniel purposed in his heart. When's the last time you resolved to do something? last time you purposed in your heart to do something. The Amplified Version says he determined in his heart. He resolved. He purposed. He determined in his heart that he wouldn't defile himself. This was possible because Daniel gave himself holy to the Lord as I was looking at this and I had the advantage of studying this you know more than we are right now I noticed that at least six times in the book of Daniel kings comment and when they're talking about Daniel and they say Daniel in whom the spirit of the gods live you know they didn't understand the one and true living God right But they notice that there's a spirit in him. We know it to be the who? Holy Spirit. I mean, the kings are saying that over and over. The spirit of the gods is him. The spirit of gods is him. They could tell he was different than anybody else. That's why the king says, I want you to be the guy that is is running the kingdom with me because I can't trust any of these others. But I know I can because you have integrity. Daniel had a reputation of having a total devotion to God. He didn't stand around and pray all the time. You've got to understand that. He was one of the busiest people in the world, but his devotion to the Lord was continual and absolute. Think about that. It was how often the world pressures us and tries to squeeze us into its mold and, and conform us to it. It's all the time. On every direction, the world is working to try to compromise us, to make us more callous toward things, to have us more and more, you know, pressed into its mold so that when the mold is relieved, we look more like the world than we look like a child of God. Romans 12, too, it's not an unfamiliar verse to any of us. The Phillips translation translates it this way. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And I'm telling you, every one of us is experiencing that. And some of us are hearing this right now and we're saying, you know what, that's what's happening to me. It's, that's what that is all about. And I'm telling you, you got to kick the mold away. Because if we want anyone to have an impression on us, it's God the Spirit, right? We wanna be impressed, we wanna have the mold, we wanna come out looking like Jesus and not the world. But transformers are people whose lives are controlled by power from within. The world wants to squeeze us into its mold, the Holy Spirit says, no, I'm gonna live my life from within, out through you, amen? Daniel was a transformer, and instead of being changed by people and circumstances around him, he was an agent for change. Man, powerful rulers like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and other government officials found themselves influenced and changed by Daniel's life. I mean, we have several of them confessing. At the end of some, they say, Daniel, your God is the most high God. Nebuchadnezzar ends up saying, he tries to make a law now. Everyone should worship him because Daniel's influence in his life and because of the spirit of God in Daniel. God used Daniel's uncompromising integrity to transform their thinking. And tell me, not many people could change one of those ancient kings' thinking. Daniel's fidelity to God was being tested at this time. Is he partaking of the food was, it was against Levitical laws, the laws in Leviticus for Jews to eat. Uh, probably some of it was the unclean food, you know, pork and shellfish and stuff like that. And it might have been uh, killed improperly, butchered wrong, which was also part of the law. But the, I think the real reason, I mean, those are important. I, I don't think Daniel would have uh, compromised there. But... What's really going on here, you guys, is that all the king's food, all of his wine, was first offered to idols and then brought to the king's table. It had all been offered through idolatrous worship kind of ceremony and then brought to the king's table. You know that if you eat from the the idolatrous meat, he says, that it's offered in the temples he's talking about in the New Testament time that you are fellowshipping with demons? Because behind every idol, there's a demon, you guys. So Daniel said, I'm not going to eat of that food. I'm not gonna participate with demons. And you know, if we don't say no in the chapter ones of life, we're not gonna say no in the chapter sixes, right? Right? And that's exactly what is happening with Daniel. He could have quietly compromised, gang. He could have stopped praying for a month, right? You know, our prayer lives go to pot sometimes, don't they? You know? He could have not prayed for a month. He could have just closed the windows, right? I mean, verse 10 is so, like, out there. He opened his windows. Now, I think he always did. I don't think he was doing this, you know, to be defiant. He opened his windows, He could have prayed silently, right? Or he could have left town for a month and gotten away from these scrutinizing eyes of his enemies, but he didn't do that. There was no rationalization. There was no compromise. There was no rationalization. There was no wavering. Daniel was a man of faith and courage, and he wasn't afraid to stand alone. He wasn't a schemer. He wasn't a coward. Would you look one more time at verse 6:10? When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber Open toward Jerusalem, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel stood alone. Turn to somebody next to you, say, Daniel th- stood alone. That's confusing. Which person do you say it to, right? Practical personal integrity. It's what I want to talk about right now. Practical personal integrity. I see Daniel, I see chapter one, I see chapter six. I see how they're connected. You start with the little things and you go to the big things. You start with meat and wine and you go to lions. You're gonna be the meat for some beast. Personal integrity involve our lives. I think it involves all areas of our lives. I'm not gonna be comprehensive here, but these are some of the things that I was thinking about. One is speaking the truth. That involves integrity, right? Speaking the truth. Sometimes it's speaking up the truth. Not lying. Being honest with your finances. I mean, when it comes to the hours you turn in. When it comes to your honesty in dealing with the government. You know, people say, oh, the government, I don't like the government, so I can rip off the government you know what? God established the government, whether you like it or not. The book of Romans says God established the government, and he put them there for a reason, and he didn't give them sword for nothing, okay? Are you honest with your finances? Do you hand back the change if you're given wrong change, if you still use money, and you don't? take that extra buck or two buck, you know, you you go back and you go, will you? Oh, it's only $2. No, that's an issue of integrity. Are you a reliable person? You know, if you say you're going to do something, do it. That's part of integrity. If you sign up for something, then show up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but it's not convenient. It doesn't matter. It's a matter of your integrity. Integrous people can be counted on, and their word means Their word what they say they're going to do it means keeping your promises don't make them if you can't keep them it means being privately pure no secret world no double life you know being responsible with your use of social media need I say more Being accountable with your online activity so much stuff can go on and nobody will find out your integrity today is building a spiritual heritage for you and your family this is something else I was thinking about you know it's not just all about me and my relationship with God and me standing alone for my own integrity but our integrity men women Our integrity affects our families too and a life of integrity is an amazing heritage to pass on to the next generation to be able to look back on your mom or your dad or have your kids look at you and say you know what my dad was a man of integrity or my daddy is my mom is they see you hand back the dollar you know what I'm saying they see you keep your word They see you say, dad, we want to do this. You know, it's, we want to go here. And you say, you know what? I made a commitment. What are you teaching your kids? You say, no, we can't do that. We can't go there. Why not? And you explain God's word. And maybe you take them to the story of Daniel. And you say, look, son, daughter, I want you dare to be like Daniel. I want you to learn to stand alone. I want you to follow the purposes of the word of God. Proverbs 20, verse 7 is a verse that is, I think, really cool for parents, for grands, for... We're all family members of something, aren't we? We all have a family. Proverbs 20, verse 7. There are various translations of it, you know, that it might read a little different I just love this verse and I put it in a frame and it's been on my desk for for years it's been there for decades and this is a verse I want to remind myself read it with me the righteous who walks in his integrity blessed are his children after him and if you're a single mom That verse applies to you, a righteous woman who walks in her integrity, how blessed are her sons after her, her children after her. You see, your integrity blesses your family. Your godliness makes a difference. Daniel, what an example of integrity And when you declare you're a Christian, people want to believe that you are what you stand for, that you live what you say. People need someone to count on today. People are looking for someone who's authentic, someone that they can trust. They're looking for churches that are authentic, filled with people they can trust, that they feel safe with. If they find you're a Christian, they want you to be a Christian. They look to you when, when things are bad. They may not talk or want to talk about Jesus, you know, at work, but then life begins to fall apart, and they'll come and they'll talk to you, and they want you to be there. They want you to live what they know a Christian should be. It's funny how they know, and some Christians don't. The world knows. Just go ask an unsaved person what a Christian should be. They'll tell you all about it, Right? It's been said integrity is the one thing that people don't take away from you. You choose to give it away. And with the Holy Spirit's help and your commitment to stand where the Word of God is, to draw the line where Scripture draws a line, you will be able to pass the integrity test. You'll be able to stand alone. You'll be a Daniel and you'll see that no matter what the pressure is on you with the Spirit's help and your determination to draw the line where God draws the line, you'll stand the test, you'll be there. I want us to pray together. Lord, we must be like Job who said, till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. That's our prayer. That till we die, we would not put away our integrity from ourselves. And of course, Lord, I know that a message like this stirs up conviction. Off time, it reminds us of past failures. It reminds us of weakness. For some of us, a lot of shame pops up. And in the name of Jesus right now, And because his blood was shed for us to cleanse our sins, we just, we don't receive those things. Lord, we believe that right now you can hit reset and we can all have new chapter ones. And our chapter one may come tomorrow. You may have already spoke to us what our chapter one is right now and where we need to draw the line. People, activities, all of the things. But as we reset right now as your people, your bride, your church, we ask that you'll give us the Holy Spirit's power, that we would be people in whom the Spirit of God dwells. We want the power, Lord. We want the strength of your Spirit. And we thank you that you've promised him to us. You say that if we desire your spirit, that you are a good father and you give him to us liberally. And that's what we receive tonight, that promise of the fullness of the spirit, his strength, his life, his love. And we ask these things, Lord, praying for those around us, loving them, desiring that they would be encouraged to in Jesus name and everybody said amen
0: This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.